I think for those of us who are in a position and feel able mentally, intellectually, spiritually to do that, then I hope, I hope more people do. Welcome to this episode of Planning Ahead. My name is Zach, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Jay Sloan. Now, Jay is a professional executive coach with experience in business strategy, performance, engagement, and leadership, and they have over 20 years of experience working in the pharmaceutical industry, as well as education and nonprofit sectors. An out queer non-binary person with years of leadership in LGBT plus inclusion, Jay has been recognised as an evolved top 50 outstanding LGBT plus future leader, and they are the co-founder and current co-chair of the Proud Science Alliance, a collective of healthcare and life sciences, LGBT networks and partners who work together to raise the bar on inclusion within their organisations and the sector as a whole. Hi Jay, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to have you on today. Um, you've just returned from a creative break that you took over the summer, so I thought perhaps you could elaborate on what exactly it was, why you decided to take it, what you ended up doing with that time. Yeah, the genesis of that idea really was at the beginning of the year, I think, and it was it was really just paying attention to my intuition, you know, say and saying I needed to not really take time off work, but but take some sort of break. And I think the reasoning behind that really was that I had the sense that. I needed some time away from what I normally do, maybe to give myself uh, an intellectual break, do something a bit different to stimulate my own thinking, really to kind of, the way that I thought about it is prepare myself to do the work that I needed to do next. And so that was really the the the, the reason behind it. Um, yeah. And so I think it just evolved from there and I think we'll get into it a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of the kind of growth mindset that I think is a term that's sort of thrown around a lot these days and people have their own interpretations of what it means. But I think one thing that really gets neglected in that sense is the idea of personal growth as well as just professional and trying to, you know, expand your career um, ambitions and things like that. So why is personal growth, do you think, important, but also why is it neglected by many people as well? That's a, I think that's a really interesting question. I think probably one of the reasons why that happens is because there isn't necessarily an emphasis on it you know so when you think about growth mi mindset in the context of work you think about skills development or capability de development or degrees or kind of pieces of paper that you might have that sort of thing and i think certainly from my experience you know you can't really do the best you you, you can at work until you also focus on on yourself you know so i think in the context of the work that i do both personally but also working with leaders as a coach that sort of thing. It's aligning uh, your kind of personal growth alongside all of that other stuff. Mm, absolutely. So you were mentioning just briefly there, the kind of work you do with um, other individuals, with um, organizations, etc. In terms of sort of making a decision to give yourself that time and take that creative break, is it easier mm. or harder from that perspective to kind of almost give yourself the advice that you're perhaps giving to others? I really th thought about that, actually. And I think ultimately it's easier. And I think partly it's because your mind is already primed. You know, you work in a coaching capacity. And so you have to be open yourself, you know, to become a coach. I was coached in the, in, initially, uh, had an interest kind of trained through the training process. You know, you go through a lot of coaching yourself and you st stay open to it through supervision and other means. And so I think, I think instead of not taking my advice, I think I'm just very much open to it. And where I feel resistance, you know, kind of meet it and kind of work through it. And I have different ways to do that. Mm, brilliant. I think one of the things that crossed my mind when I was preparing for this interview was the fact that taking a creative break is very similar to a situation that I guess a lot of people had during the pandemic and having sort of that increased time to potentially do things that they perhaps neglected or finding new hobbies, new passions, et cetera. But I think there was also kind of a pressure to, have achieved a certain amount during that time. Mm. So for you as someone that has both sort of taken on that in your own capacity, but also advised it to others, what would you say about the kind of pressures that people put on themselves to kind of achieve things when they're taking, you know, time for themselves or to learn a new hobby? Why is it important to sort of keep that sort of level head and, and realize that actually everyone's on their own sort of separate journeys? I think you started to articulate it as a reason why, you know, because everybody has their own journey, you know, and I think you mentioned the pandemic, it was a bit of a forced break. And 
people responded to, to it differently. And I think there was nothing wrong with people who chose to kind of check out for a while, relax or, or, or whatever. But I think it's, I think what you're getting at or what I, what I would suggest, you know, is that it's the important part is to check in with yourself. You know, it was like, what do, what do I need? You know, what is my personality? That sort of thing. What I noticed, I think during the pandemic, but also during my, my, my break that I took is that I jumped in, you know, it's like, I just, that's my, that's my approach. You know, it's like, even though I wasn't working per se, I was, I was into what I was doing, you know? So I was like, I, and that's something I discovered about myself. It's just like, I can't, I can't get away from that. I can't just stop. You know, I'm just motivated by nature. So I think it really comes down to you. You know, you, you can't, you can't force anything, but also you shouldn't stop yourself either. You know, if you're like motivated, kind of action biased, you like to get things done, that sort of thing. There's nothing wrong with either kind of going after something. Mm. Say someone's kind of had the the realization that you've had of kind of, I want to start pursuing, you know, something else, finding a new hobby, you know, to working on, you know, either personal or professional skills, but mm. not really sure where to start. What would you say you were talking about kind of checking in on yourself and sort yeah. of understanding yourself better, but how does that process start for you? Where did the, the realization and the motivation come um come from in order to sort of start that process for you i think it's a combination of things really and i think it's just about knowing yourself first of all you know and like and i mean i think i i know for myself i'm into exercise fitness that sort of thing so i think it's not about ex- exploring that per se in general but it's might might be finding a new way into uh, that for example a few years ago i experienced something called five rhythms and it's a way of using dance movement meditation. And I thought, gosh, that sounds really weird. I'm in, you know, I was like, I'm going to try that. And I ended up loving it, you know? So I think it's about experimentation within the context of what you already know that you like and enjoy. Sometimes, however, I think it just happens organically, you know? So one of the strangely weird creative things that happened over my break is that I was asked by a couple of photographers to do some photo shoots. And I thought, that's weird. (laughs) And I'm like a bit... I wasn't, I wasn't sure about it, but I was like, why not try it out? And, uh, you know, kind of and di- discovered actually that that kind of that creative process, the whole thing is something that I really, really enjoyed, you know? So those are two different ways in at least. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. You were touching on sort of an idea that I'd, I'd read you uh, had written about before of kind of this just idea mm-hmm. of it being so freeing to just say yes to more things mm-hmm. um, and just kind of letting go of, those sort of preconditioned feelings of mm. stopping yourself and those kind of anxieties, apprehensions, etc. Um, obviously, we're talking about just there how liberating it can be. But what was it for you that just kind of triggered that change, that sort of change of mentality of like, yes, I'm I'm just going to start saying that word more often now. I th- yeah, and I, I should qualify that too because I was sharing the story with um, this this kind of learning group that I'm a part of. And somebody had a strong reaction to that, you know, like, oh, God, no, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to say no more. And I think in the context of work, particularly uh, if you're working full time more in a corporate environment, I think the the conversation was always about how do you say no, uh, because you, you typically want to say yes, I want to I want to do that because I want to prove I can do it. I want to say that because it might mean advancement or whatever, whatever positive outcome that people might perceive it to be. And so I think it's saying no is more about protecting your own space, your time, that sort of thing. I think in the context, though, when you're choosing to step away from, um, I guess, traditional work in the way that I did, it was really about context, you know, and so I didn't have the confines of, of any kind of regular schedule. So I could say yes more. And I think so that ranged from a friend who was like, oh, do you want to get together in the afternoon tomorrow? Yes. <laughs> you know, normally I would say no, because I have to work or I had other things to do. Or one time we were having dinner with a friend who was in town from India and we had a great time. We went next door to have a drink at this um, at this club I'm a member of in Soho. And we met up with these two other people and they're like, oh, we're going out to this other place. You want to go? And we're like, oh, sure. And so uh, my husband and I got home at like four o'clock that morning and it was a Wednesday, you know? So, um, I mean, who does that on a Wednesday? And I think, so there's this element of freedom, you know, by saying yes, within the context of where that's possible. I think though, when you think about it a bit more esoterically or deeply, you know, beyond just saying yes to going out and having fun, it's, it's saying, 
normally instead of saying, oh, I can prioritize other things when you what you really mean is like, gosh, that scares the shit out of me. I don't want to do that. You know, that's that just seems a little bit too out there for me um, saying yes to it and saying, I want to explore that. I want to challenge myself to put myself in a situation, obviously, safely, you know, that that feels I mean, uncomfortable, but also exciting, maybe interesting, you know, that might lead to, um, I don't know, some sort of breakthrough. I, that's so, so funny to say it that way, because it sounds so dramatic. But, but I think that's what happens, you know, through discomfort, through challenging yourself. I think that's certainly how you explore and discover things about yourself. Yeah, definitely. On On that idea of kind of understanding boundaries in the workplace and especially mm. for you know someone sort of my age around mm. um sort of early 20s starting out in first job or just yeah. at a new um, work environment it is very difficult to kind of sort of get rid of that feeling of wanting to impress wanting to make a good impression and i think especially now with the sort of combined work environment of both an office and then a lot of working from home now it's kind of mm -hmm. difficult i know for a lot of people to sort of separate their personal and professional lives because you're essentially taking work home with you yeah so in terms of sort of understanding both your own boundaries but also establishing them i think it's mm -hmm. important for some people how do you go about sort of maintaining a sort of healthy work-life balance for yourself? Yeah. I think ultimately when I think about work-life work balance, it's not something that ever really resonated with me. And probably the reason for that is because I've always connected personally to the work that I do. In fact, when it stopped being fun or interesting, when I stopped learning, that kind of thing, then I changed, you know, I did something different, you know? And so I think... In that sense, I always liked what I do. I loved my job. People thought I was weird, you know, to say that. They always thought, that's, gosh, I'm jealous, but also that's weird. And like, who who loves their work? But that's always been the case. And so whenever people start talking about that balance, I was like, well, actually, when you love what you do, it feels le I feel less compelled to do it. However, I do think that I do have a certain capacity and I know what that is. Because I when I work for myself, I work intense uh, intensely, you know, so some people are like, oh, I work 16 hours a day. I was like, I don't know how you <laughs> literally I don't know how you do that, because it, at 10 hours, usually I'm like, that is more than I could usually do. You know, I just get too exhausted and it's because I'm in it and I'm in it. You know, I'm just working hard. So I think um, I think the advice that I always give to people is not to <laughs> to establish boundaries to say work is separate from life unless that works for you. It's more about just discovering for yourself what works, you know, and what are your what is your personal capacity, both mentally, physically, spiritually around the work that you're doing, you know, and I think also understanding that there's it kind of ebbs and flows. So there are moments in my career where I chose to work long hours, let's say, um, but I would balance that, you know, because it takes a toll. So I would like balance that by, you know, saying I'm going to, you know, not work as, as much, but I knew that was for a period of time. But I was never I was never in the mindset of, you know, work long hours as, as much as you can uh, for advancement. I think I was much more focused around myself and my own well-being always, you know, to kind of go into that space. But um, but rather than listening to other people and looking at some sort of formula, what I would say is start with yourself, find out what works for you. And then you'll then you'll have the the blueprint for yourself about uh, what uh, you know feels good. Mm. In terms of that journey of kind of understanding what it is you want to achieve from your work and and what motivates you, mm. what keeps you you know stimulated and enjoying the atmosphere that you're you're in, is that mm. something that kind of just comes to you naturally? Is that something that you worked on yourself I think people would be interested to kind of hear how that sort of realization and understanding of yourself sort of clicked for you yeah I think it's very much intertwined with coming to terms with my sexual orientation and gender identity you know as a queer person I think by nature sometimes I'm not I'm not unique you know we do the introspection you know I guess for some people the journey is is quite simple and straightforward for me, it wasn't so much because of my age, where I grew up, the kind of family that I was in, that sort of thing. So what I had to do is 
is kind of figure out how I could, I, I guess, survive is a really good word in an environment that didn't feel very, very nice, you know? And I think, and I think part of that journey then was um, making some choices about what I wanted to do, to do in my career. Um, so just very specifically, I was living in Little Rock, Arkansas and a, you know, not a place I really, really, really wanted to be in an environment that was, you know, ultimately kind of toxic for queer people, I would say. And also not that I didn't enjoy my work, but I, I knew that I wanted to do something different. And the pathway out was really graduate school. And so I made a choice. I spent a year, you know, kind of exploring what it is I wanted to do. And I strongly advocate for that. You know, it's like I think um, and, you know, because I really thought about it and I had four possibilities and I ended up choosing one. And I moved, uh, you know, across the country. And as part of that, I made a promise to myself in a way, because at that moment where I was like, I'm choosing this pathway, it's because I enjoy this and I want my my work to be fun. You know, so I think, so yeah, I discovered that for myself and it's something that I can pass along. I think one, it is possible. You can find joy at work and uh, find find what your passion is, wherever you happen to be even. Um, but certainly I think that makes a difference. Um, and yeah, so no one really helped me, you know, but I think it was more from this uh, survival instinct and and having some sort of intuitive understanding, you know, that in order to not just be happy, but remain happy, then I needed to make some choices um, professionally. And yeah, so that I think that I held on to that. And as I mentioned, you know, it's not like it's not like everyone has this amazing typically this career path where you're like, oh, I just love what I do all the time. You know, I'm working with amazing people who are super supportive and leaders who are outstanding in terms of their support for your development, that sort of thing. That's not typical. So, but holding on to that, that premise and that core really served me well, you know, because um, anytime I came up against the situation where I was like, well, this doesn't feel fun anymore. Then I was able to say, well, I have the power to change. And I did. Mm, I, th I think the, the, the next question I'm sort of thinking of now is sort of twofold mm. because I think it's it's something that I'm I'm very aware of you know I'm lucky enough to sort of come from that generation where there is far more support um, especially explicit support for queer people mm. and I think it's it's sort of a, a paradoxical problem of that the support is there but also you know having seen the sort of resilience and survival instinct of a lot of um other generations of queer people or people from minority backgrounds there's almost a sort of hesitance to sort of take that support and sort of mm. i can do this myself i'm i'm fine other people have been fine i will be fine so what would you say is the right um sort of combination of both mm. using your your own personal intuition but also you know mm not being afraid to accept that help and support and advice from other people as well. In the first instance, I would say 100% you can do it on your own. You know, there's, you know, we're, we're as human beings, we're super resilient. We're smart, creative, intelligent beings, you know, it's like, I think you can always figure it out, you know, but I think also what I've discovered, particularly because I think what, what you're talking about now is certainly an environment where, there is support, there is access, you know, to uh, various means to, to, you know, support you through your life, I would say, or career, let's say. However, I think we still live in a world where there is, the, there, there is present things like microaggressions or, you know, oppression that doesn't feel like somebody's not going to call me uh, a, a name walking down Oxford Street usually, you know, certainly not in the workplace, but there are, but but I feel it still in the corporate environment before I left, you know, I always felt it, you know, and, and that does take a toll, you know? So I think what I always advocate for is as, as queer people, but anyone from a community of difference, um, never apologize for accessing and, and leaning on your community. I, I say, find like, find your village or create your village, you know? And I think for, for me, that's always been super important, you know? So I have people around me, chosen specifically because they're queer <laughs> because i know that if i have any sort of issues um that uh, i can rely on them but most importantly not because people are going to call me names or actively oppress me or anything like that but sometimes i just need to show up as myself and when i do that around 
you know, let's face it, you know, uh, straight people usually, um, they don't always get the context of my life, <laughs> you know, but uh, with my, my queer group, let's say my support network, I don't have to explain myself. I show up and they're like, yeah, I get, I get you, you know? Mm, absolutely. I think that sort of leads us on quite nicely to um, some of the work you've done. So perhaps we could sort of talk about the Pride si- Proud Science Alliance mm. um, that you co-founded and lead. Um, it's something that I think a lot of people that I know both within our society and otherwise um, will be looking at sort of careers in STEM and perhaps, you know, not seeing themselves or seeing themselves enough to feel sort of reassured by the industry, perhaps um, even still. So perhaps you could kind of talk about what inspired you to sort of set up this um, group and what it is sort of designed to achieve. Yeah, I think initially it just felt like a, good idea you know because i was connected with people at the francis crick institute and the welcome trust we're all trying to do the same things in terms of our internal employee networks and so it just made sense you know if you wanted to do what we're doing why not do it together and the idea was that we could do more together than we could separately and and fundamentally that was true i think then we got connected to other uh, science life sciences and healthcare organizations and kind of grew to what we are today. But I think, but then we start, as scientists might do, you know, we started to interrogate a little bit, you know, what is it that we're really trying to do? And I think if you do scratch beneath the surface, then you start to uncover that there are some fundamental problems, you know, in the sector. And I think that bears out in reports, but, um, and I'll just mention one that was published in Nature last year. And it was the largest scale uh, survey that was done for, by LGBTQ plus uh, scientists, basically. And the outputs were really quite disturbing from my perspective. Maybe not surprising, you know, because I think I had this sense by working in the industry, you know, that there were some issues, you know, but I think this really spoke to it very clearly. And I think one of them is that uh, queer people tend to, uh, 20% more than their straight colleagues, have their work devalued just because they're queer. And I was like, and I, that, that started to make me think about it, actually. And across my career, then I could point to specific moments in time where somebody responded to me. And I know there were, and, and I'll, I'll give you a specific example, you know, um, about my ability or inability to lead. And I think that the typical, I would say, feedback that queer people get, uh, people that look like me or you, is that uh, you lack gravitas, you know, which means you're not masculine enough. You know, you, you you couldn't possibly lead because, you know, you're you're too soft or something like that. And so it's this 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 uh, weird archetype that we have around a, a leader. And so the the way uh, the, my ability to to lead was discounted, but professionally too, as a scientist, I mean that's that's true, and it it bears out another research as well. But I think that became the foundation then for saying, well, we we you know. We had this basic idea that we could do more together, but now, you know, we know, you know, because, uh, you know, uh, research and studies and reports and stuff indicate that there is, there are some issues and we wanted to make that or help change uh, the sector. Mm, and and what is it do you think that needs to be done on kind of an individual level? Like obviously there is power in groups like the Proud Science Alliance, mm-hmm. um, but also there are just kind of perhaps people that sort of like I want to be able to kind of make myself more comfortable or people like me more comfortable in my workplace what can I do does it stem from a kind of educative side is it a case of trying to get people to learn and understand or is it Mm. simply a case of doing what you're doing and creating that group where there is a, a sort of newfound safe environment for people I think it's a combination of things, some of which you've mentioned, you know, and I think there is that element of individual uh, education, you know, and I think um, certainly organizations like the Proud Science Alliance want to focus in that area, you know, to raise the bar on people's understanding, I would say, of of the queer experience and why it matters that we even focus around this at work and that sort of thing, the basic stuff, you know, and I think there's also an element of supporting queer people, you know, who, who, do have ambition and they do want to do well in the sector, but maybe 
don't feel the support or maybe just need that extra, you know, kind of a support network that I talked about, you know, to lean into occasionally um, that combination. But I think, I think the, the fundamental issue really is within the is systemic, you know, and we could probably spend a whole hour, you know, just kind of talking about that. And there's plenty of people talking about it, you know, that are really articulate about what's kind of wrong. The way I would sum it up though, is going back to what I mentioned before is that we have a certain mindset around how things are done, you know, culturally speaking, typically in organizations, particularly, I think it extends to academia because I came from academia before I went into the corporate sector, I would say, but uh, universally there's this, um, there's this bias towards straight white cis men. You know, it's it's hard to hear. And I think there's a lot of defense defensiveness probably that comes up uh, as a re result of a statement like that. But I, I don't just see it and I haven't just felt it, but I read about it and, re and reports and stuff. And so I think it exists. So I think the question becomes like, how do you, yeah, how do you, how do you, deal with, uh, you know, a system that isn't necessarily always set up for us to be successful. That's the space that we work in. You know, how can we, how can we effectively support people, you know, who want to be in STEM, but also in a way, hopefully somehow <laughs> start to dismantle a system that isn't, isn't really fit for purpose anymore. Mm, absolutely. Perhaps we can sort of return back to a, a point you were making uh, just earlier about that idea of kind of how queer people are not really seen as leaders because they lack how you were saying the gravitas, the the sort yeah. of the, the heterosexual dominant personality trait that is associated with leadership. And I think for me, it's it's always very interesting to read things about that kind of intersectionality of both misogyny and homophobia and things like that and the sort of feminizing of people as if that is still something that's inherently a negative trait and I think it's very interesting you know advancing our understanding of how we perceive gender obviously that is something that you are, are very aware of as a non-binary person and I think mm -hmm. it's very interesting to kind of actually go what you ha hang on it doesn't have to be just those that are perhaps questioning their gender identity the, the, the whole idea of gender stereotypes are something that everyone should be made aware of yeah. so do you think that this is something that i mean obviously it is something that is being ignored but how do we address it how do we kind of ask those important questions of people who are perhaps so caught up in the the, the, the dominant gendered system that's existed for so many years and yeah. Like you say, how do we begin to sort of dismantle that when it is issues like that that are kind of at the root of not just this problem, but many within within society? Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's different ways into that. And I think I think if you look at activists, also poet, um, performer, Alok Menon, they talk about this a lot in their not just poetry, but work and podcasts and everything. And Alok is quite amazing in the articulation of that. And it's like, I think it's offering solutions to how you can dismantle the system. Personally, where I am, you know, is that I don't have faith and in my lifetime that it will be any different, you know? And I think maybe that'll change. Maybe I'll stop being so cynical. I don't know, but I think where I choose to work is probably uh, on two other dimensions. And um, one is around, because I do feel like the, strongly about uh, education in the area of uh, gender. And in some ways I'm like, and I guess the reason why I do is because I take advantage of how I look, how I come across and how people perceive me. I'm 100% genderqueer, non-binary, without question, this is how I, how I am, this is how I show up in the world, but people don't perceive me that way. So in some ways I have a platform to talk about it because I'm more palatable, let's say. That's a weird word, you know, but I think that's part of it, you know, because of the way that I look sometimes then people invite me in. So I feel like a, a sense of accountability to talk about it in a way that helps people understand to dismantle the myths around sex, gender, and everything associated with that. And I think by default, you sneak in concepts, you know, to help change minds around, we're not talking about liberation of me, we're talking about liberation of you. <laughs> I already feel liberated. I know who I am. 
I show up in the world and I feel good. You know, I found my place and I feel really good about that. I think where, where it gets, where the tension exists is around your expectations because I, if somebody lo looks like me, you expect me to act in a certain way. And this is wrapped up in your own inability to, in your own kind of prison, you know, free your mind and we're all better off, you know? So I think there's that, that element. And I think, but the, my passion, I have to say, is working within the queer community, but also just in communities of difference around this idea of let's support ourselves, you know, through, um, you know, where the system isn't always designed for us to be successful. Let's harness our own wisdom. Let's tap into our own power, our own knowledge of who we are and how we can get through. We're super resilient very creative, all of these things. And so how do we, how do we access that and kind of share the knowledge, share the support, you know? So what, what we end up doing is saying, well, fine, that system is there, you know, it exists, you know, I'm going to find my own path, you know, and it may not always feel comfortable. It may not be that, you know, I can achieve all of the ambitions that I thought I could, but, but I think, um, yeah, I'm on that journey myself, but I think 100%. I mean, I'm living my best life, you know, so, but I think that all starts with kind of letting go of what everyone told me it sh should be, uh, all of that, and kind of working on myself and doing what I was, uh, what I mentioned, um, that I'm helping other people do, you know, find your own, find your own way, find a way to stand in your own power, make your own decisions, kind of be empowered in your own life. Mm. Yeah, I, I find it almost sort of depressingly ironic that this idea of identifying as non-binary or, or gender queer, when when queer is such a, a word sort of reclaimed and associated with that power yeah. to be different, there is yeah. still that associated sort of image being personality essence of what non-binary is. And I think that completely defeats the point. Yeah. Um, and it's something that you were kind of just mentioning there and that idea mm. of you understand that perspective and so feel well-placed to kind of discuss it. So is that something that you think almost more people need to sort of realize is there is always something that you can say, there is always an experience you can discuss in order to kind of progress people's understandings, even if it, yeah, it's very much a case of, like you say, it's very easy for someone mm -hmm. to feel comfortable in themselves and therefore yeah. stand back and leave it all alone. Yeah. But for you, you obviously have a different perspective of, well, I am comfortable with myself. So I want people to understand how to feel liberated themselves as well. Yeah, I think, and I think I do have some strong thoughts on that, actually, because I think I, I think of myself as an slightly as an accidental activist, you know, because I didn't ever set out to do what I've done in a way, you know, and I think it's much more comfortable, you know, just to focus around my work and be be into that what I've layered on is all of this work around LGBTQ plus inclusion. And I, I wouldn't change it because I think it's absolutely necessary. It's super interesting and all of that, you know, but I think at some point about, you know, 10 years ago, I think I was given an opportunity to speak at this event at the, at work for the first time, which meant I was going to be on a stage and talking about my sexual orientation. I didn't even know what non-binary was then, you know, so that wasn't even a part of my consciousness at that, at that point. But I think um, that set myself on a pathway because I had to make a choice on that day. I'm going to, I was open at very out at work, you know, but there's a difference, you know, getting on a stage and kind of talking about, who you are in a very open way with people you don't even know. But um, what I realized from that point, I guess two things. One part of my decision-making is that, well, nobody else was doing it, you know, um, but I knew plenty of queer people. So I was like, why is no one really talking about this? And if I'm invited, then, well, I don't, it doesn't feel super comfortable for me, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I had this realization that sometimes we speak not just for ourselves, but for 10, 20, a thousand people behind us who feel unable to speak for whatever reason. So always keep that in mind. But then the other part is that, is that, um, yeah, then what happens is uh, once you start telling your story, then it gives permission for other people to do the same, you know? And I think after that, it felt like, it felt like I was coming out to somebody every day because they're like, let me tell you, tell you my story, you know? And so it 
kind of set myself, I say, on this pathway. And I haven't really looked back in a way because I think, um, and because my hope is that more people would, you know, do, you know, speak about their experience. However, I think it's also important for us to recognize in not just in the queer community, but if any, any um, underrepresented community, uh, uh, groups or communities of difference that there's an emotional toll sometimes in sharing our story openly. And um, what somebody described to me recently as emotional labor, and sometimes we're expected to do it, you know, you're like, you know, cause I'm, I'm out just having drinks and somebody will say, you know, to ask, to ask about my gender identity. I'm like, dude, we're just having drinks. Can we just socialize? You know, I'm not here to be your teacher tonight, you know, and sometimes I make a choice, you know, to say that. And sometimes I choose not to, but I think um, it's just being mindful and conscious. Not everybody will be in a place, you know, to be the spokesperson, you know, for gender identity or queerness or, or whatever. However, you know, I think for those of us who are in a position and feel able mentally, intellectually, spiritually to do that, then I hope, I hope more people do. So what you're saying there is kind of reminding me of that analogy of um, in America when kids weren't allowed to write with their left hand and there's a yeah. tape seen countless times of that that graph where all of a sudden it skyrockets and plateaus and everyone's like oh my god there's so many more left-handed people what's happening and i think it's you know a bit of a sort of silly analogy but it does kind of mm. make sense visualize that idea of there are so many people who perhaps are questioning something within their identity but not sure really where to start or how to kind of start that sort of uh mm personal development and sort of realization of of how they feel comfortable within themselves and i think i think you're so right there there becomes a point where yes we can sit here and say i feel comfortable in myself but it's mm. very different to then be pressed by people who especially those when you know that there is mm. not going to be that common ground of sort of understanding yes i yeah. can relate to kind of that experience or that sort of mm. exploration of yourself i guess and i think it's it's a very weird thing because I I sort of had a sort of moment of realization of I'm very happy to kind of talk to people about myself but kind of on my own terms. Mm. It's that idea of sort of I made myself almost feel like I was being selfish for it as if there was that sort of entitlement to sort of speak to others when you know questioned or asked to have a conversation or something and I think it's one of those things where I think the idea of accidental activist is a, is a really nice way of putting it. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, for you, what, what is it that I think sort of drives you in certain situations to discuss it? Well, when are those situations where you're like, actually, do you know what I'm going to mm -hmm. do it? Obviously there'll be events and perhaps interviews like this one, but mm -hmm. aside from that, what is it that kind of motivates you in those moments to kind of be that bit more frank and honest about, aspects of your identity yeah i think really what it comes down to is my energy levels you know and most of the time i feel pretty up up for it and and kind of ready you know for whatever comes back my way and it's it's usually this range of ambivalence like i don't really understand what you said you know about your pronouns and so i'm just going to ignore it to oh wow that's so curious i just oh, um that's amazing you're so amazing you know and you become held up as like this poster child, you know, for like, oh, I know somebody who's non-binary now, you know, and I'm like all excited now, tell me everything, tell me, you know, what is it like, you know, like what, it, you know, that, that sort of thing. And so I think, um, so I just have to be ready for it, I think. And sometimes I'm just not, you know, so I think that's, that's kind of it. And also I kind of weigh it up, you know, because I think, is there, is, is there a reason, you know, for me to tell my story. And a lot of times in a work context, there is, you know, because I think, as I mentioned, there's plenty of people who just don't feel comfortable, you know, talking about not their, not just their gender identity, but their sexual orientation and, and um, anything kind of around, uh, around that, you know, so I think anything that I can do to create a pathway to understanding and create more awareness, you know, so it feels less, less of a, a burden, let's say, just to be yourself, someplace then i want to do that mm. yeah I, I think it's it's something that i've sort of discussed with my friends a lot i think mm. you know I'm, I'm lucky where i have a very supportive kind of queer network of friends but then mm -hmm. there are also people that just don't really understand you know some of the things that i talk about or you know go through and mm -hmm. things like that and 
I think it's it's something that I was having a conversation with my friends about last week. Um, I'm sure you're aware of the scenario surrounding Kit Connor from Heartstopper and the way that he was forced to come out essentially on Twitter. And yeah. I think for me, that was really interesting to kind of sort of gauge their reactions to something like that. I think mm. it's almost kind of a sort of feeling of innate duty that queer people have that now that we are accepted and embraced mm. within general society, there is almost a duty to talk about ourselves and be fully honest about ourselves. And mm-hmm. it it's sometimes something that I can never really understand the other sort of side of that conversation because you know, I don't sit there and go, so when, when did you know you were straight? Yeah. How, how did, how did that feel? Like, yeah. do you feel comfortable with that? Um, because I think it's something that we were sort of forced to repress or feel ashamed about for such a long time, mm-hmm. that it's, mm-hmm. it's weird to have that flipped on its head. And now suddenly we should be so proud and open about it. Yeah. Um, so I guess my next question would be sort of as someone who does a lot of um, speaking events as a sort of coach and sort of someone that it is willing to sort of use your own personal experiences to help others what was it that kind of led you towards that path of of being comfortable to be like yes actually I'm going to to use my knowledge to sort of be there to support other people yeah I think <laughs> I mentioned part of it you know just having this awareness you know somehow of the yeah, because I, I even went on the Stonewall Stonewall role model program, and I thought that's weird. I mean, who's who wants to be a role model? All of that that helped change my mind about what that actually means. You know, it's just making an active choice to speak your truth and to kind of not just stand up. Because I think a lot of people do that. We put our pronouns behind our in our signature. We, you know, we talk openly about our lives. You know, that sort of thing. Or um, if somebody says, yeah, I'm I'm queer, you know, you, there's a difference between standing up and then standing out. And I think that's what I, and so I think to make that crossover, I think it is an active choice. And part of it was this recognition that those around me, you know, weren't, weren't speaking, you know, and I thought um, I want to, to do that. I think what compelled me after that point is, as I mentioned, people start telling me their story. So I spent years of being the person, one person within this organization where I worked, where people would contact me confidentially and say, can I just talk to you about what's going on? And and I don't want to tell the stories because I always get emotional, uh, even when I tell one, you know, because I think some of them are heartwarming, but a lot of them are, you know, heart, uh, what is it, the opposite, you know, um, of that, you know, and I think it's just really, they were difficult to hear, I guess, sometimes. And I think, and, and I think that, I just keep those those touch points handy, you know, because when I feel tired or I'm like, this is too difficult or wouldn't it be easier, you know, just to kind of check out a little bit. I I, re- I remember and it's easier now. You can just open up the news and think about what's happening uh, to queer people all around the world, you know, and I think we and so I, I think I also recognize um, the privilege I have. I get to live in London and an amazingly supportive city for the most part, yeah, I would say, and a country that allows me to be married to my husband, um, you know, different things like that. So I think there's almost like, well, I, I have the choice, you know, not to say anything, but also I feel compelled on the one hand, you know, to do what I can to to make a difference. And so it's that combination of like, that's just what's inside of me, you know, like I'm a bit mouthy and I, I say what's on my mind, but also there's really strong, good reason uh, to do it. Mm. Yeah, I think it, that's something that I've definitely sort of experienced r- running this podcast, speaking to to such incredible people that give mm. insights that I can never even kind of dream to sort of come up with or or, mm. or dread to go through. And I think it, it is really important, that idea of perspective and understanding privilege, I think especially within our community there there are too many people where it comes with the assumption of well I'm a minority therefore I'm underprivileged and it's like no you you need to recognize the fact that there may be things that are challenging in our lives Mm -hmm. but you know I I personally you know look at the the world cup that's about to start in Qatar Mm -hmm. and a lot of the conversations in the the UK in the media are all about Mm -hmm. will it be safe for fans to travel and it's like, 
okay, valid question. But yeah. let's also look at the the treatment of migrant workers and the queer <laughs> community in Qatar. I think, yeah. you know, it's understanding that, okay, you may want to go to the, the World Cup in the Middle East. Not really sure why. Um, but if you want to, fine. But also maintain that perspective. It, it's something that yeah. I think for me, potentially the community is lacking a little bit, potentially predominantly in my generation. Um, so how would you kind of advise people to sort of maintain that awareness and kind of understanding, you know, that we we do come from a place of privilege simply by being white or living in mm-hmm. a country like the UK or something like that? How do you maintain and uphold that perspective of of, of simply recognizing that privilege, mm. but also being able to, you know, act on it in some ways. I think that's a really difficult one, you know, because my activism, let's say, comes from a very personal point of view. You know, I think my my voice and who I was was suppressed for so long that when I decided to activate my voice and say this is who I am, I was like, no one's gonna shut me up. You know, it was like I'm, you know, and then it kind of progressed from there where I was given a platform, let's say, you know, to to kind of speak about who I was, speak my truth. And, and I think it just kind of built from there. And I think, um, and as I mentioned, you, you take the active choice to, you know, to step into spaces and and do that. I think, so I think it's a bit, a bit, probably a bit more difficult if you don't feel compelled for whatever reason, you know, you're kind of sitting in your privilege and we all have that experience, you know, it's like, I think right now I'm challenging myself, let's say, to talk more about my whiteness, you know, and also support, um, uh, people of color and the struggles that they, and I'm aware of it, but I want to be more active, you know, and that feels slightly un- uncomfortable because I'm like, what do I do? You know, I, as a queer person, I know what to do because I'm speaking from my lived experience, you know, and I think if, if you feel comfortable, you don't feel particularly oppressed, you know, or anything like that, then you are sitting in, in comfort in a, in a way, you know, so like, how do you, how do you kind of move out of that when it doesn't feel good, you know, whereas human beings were like, I just want to be comfortable. I mean, I'm like, I'm fine. You know, we, we tend towards comfort, I would say as a, as a baseline. Um, so, but I think, yeah, I think anyone who pays attention, you know, and has, has empathy and that sort of thing will realize there is lots of work to, to be done, you know? So, um, it's just about finding that part of yourself saying, and making that choice saying, you know what I do, I do want to be part of the solution in the future rather than somebody else creating it for me. Mm, I I think it's a question I ask myself a lot, especially, you know, interviewing people who, Mm -hmm. you know, may chair a pride network or have done Mm -hmm. something incredible to help another Mm -hmm. minority community or something like that. And it's Mm -hmm. always a question that, that comes into my mind, but you, you never really know how they're going to respond let alone what the answer will be because i think there is just that the still raw Mm. uncomfortability with the question of how aware are you of your whiteness yeah i think that that's just something that you know we've never really even bothered to think about let alone actually be honest with ourselves um so what do you think from from your experience of kind of working to sort of understand that and that idea of of the privilege that we have as white people mm-hmm. what what are the best ways in kind of being part of that solution that you mentioned and sort of showing that awareness but without sort of flipping it on its head and suddenly mm. victimizing yourself because i think that's also something that some mm-hmm. people do when they almost become sort of too self-aware and yeah. it becomes detrimental to some respect yeah, and I, I see that a little bit, you know, where people are stepping into the space and saying, "My voice matters," and and stuff. And I think what I what I'm choosing to do, I can speak from my personal experience, is to educate myself. Um, it's not like I have no low awareness or anything like that around uh, racial issues. I grew up in the Southern United States, where it was very present of of mind. Um, people in my family were racist, actively racist, you know. So I have this experience, and and. Um, and so it's always been part of the dialogue in my life, let's say. And I have I grew up growing up, I had loads of of African American friends, um, you know that sort of thing. And so I think it's present of mine. But I think still, it's not my lived experience. And so what I do is try and figure out ways that I can at least understand. You know, there's some great 
just like there is if you want to learn about queerness, you know, uh, documentaries or things that you can access online, podcasts, uh, reading, you know, things like that, but also just paying attention and listening to what other people have to say. So I'm part of this LinkedIn group as an example. And li literally, like 99% of the time, I just listen, you know, because I'm like, wow, you know, this is what people are kind of playing back as their lived experience and what they're kind of dealing with and the response uh, to what's going on there, you know, so I think that's, um, that's important. But I think at some point, you have to say something, you know, or do something. And, and I think it's, um, yeah, and I think so, and I'll give you one example, this is a small example. But I was talking to a leadership group yesterday about um, privilege, or like um, the wheel of power, we were kind of talking about one of those one of the dimensions is race. And I told them openly, I was like, um, about my experience, I'm pretty much close to the center in terms of power, because I'm white, highly educated, I'm not just American, but also British, you know, so I have that going for me, but I'm on the outside in terms of my gender identity. And I tell you what, I feel it. And just that one difference, you know, away from power. And I can tell you, if we also altered the fact that I'm white, and if I had dark skin, I wouldn't be here talking to you right now. This is the truth. You know, because, because of my life experience would be have been completely different It's really, I mean, I don't think I would have been, you know, because I think, because because I'm not, I don't come from privilege, first of all. So having made it to where I, I, I did was somewhat related to kind of probably hiding my sexual orientation to an extent, but also the color of my skin and people, how people perceive me, you know, and, and life, you know, because if I'm a non-binary queer black person, I'm like, you know, the disadvantages would have been too great. And I don't think I'd be talking to leadership groups, you know, about uh, inclusion and what's going on. So I think, um, so there's that leap that you somehow somehow have to make from listening and paying attention than to being actively engaged in dialogue and then also choosing you know <laughs> go on a march you know I, I mean there there are things that you can do actively uh, show up that's what i call it just show up yeah I, I think it's it's such a fine line of understanding both the fact that we are fortunate to be in a situation where we can use our voices and mm -hmm. platforms we are given to speak mm -hmm. not only for ourselves, but to some extent on, on behalf of others or to perhaps help others by sharing our perspective and it, it, it shifts their own. Mm -hmm. But then also kind of countering that with the idea of making sure that we're not just speaking for other people and denying them their voices mm -hmm. and platforms and things like that. Yeah. And I think that it's such a, a simple um, sort of balance to make, yet so hard to kind of find the right line. But I think from my perspective, what, one thing that always helps is just, like you say, talking to people, understanding those other perspectives and kind of gaining that greater overarching view. I mean, th mm. that kind of learning can never stop. You you, you will right. never talk to all seven, nearly eight billion people on on this planet so it's, it's a constant cycle of, of learning and and growing yeah. i think that that brings me on to one of the projects you're working on um so researching and interviewing people for a book that you're writing yes that's right um, so i guess from that specific perspective of gathering insights gathering personal experiences what have you kind of learned about you know how perspectives shift experiences and how you know, people could have a very similar journey, yet a completely mm. different end destination. Yeah, I think what well, I guess what's interesting about that question is I would say what I've found mostly is how our experiences are similar, because I'm only interviewing people from communities of difference, because the whole idea is to understand what wisdom, knowledge, capabilities do we hold and and, and have that can support us and as I talked about earlier about this within a system that isn't always designed for us to be successful, you know, and I think, and so certainly, certainly, uh, I mean, each of us have our own unique experience and it's, it's based on not just where we come from our family situation, but also our race or ethnicity, our sexual orientation, gender identity, um, all of those, all of those different factors, I would say, are, ability or disability, you know, whatever factors in, you know, and I think so. So I think that's, that's prominent. But I think what happens, though, and 
those individuals because I asked them, you know, it was like, you've obviously been successful um, or aspire to be, you know, I've interviewed uh, younger people as well, but um, some, you know, that are super successful, Olympic gold medalist, you know, uh, a quite famous comedian, you know, different people. And I always ask them those questions about like, how did you, how did you get where you're going? You know, it's like, what did you do kind of thing? And so I think the similarities are probably more important, you know, and I think, and it is about resilience. It's about connecting to our core purpose, things like that, that really matter. And I think um, this often, <laughs> often that we, we, we don't see, or we don't uh, value, let's say in uh, most of our careers, but I won't get into it because I'll never stop talking about it. But, um, but I think, uh, <laughs> but I think, but I think, just looping back to your question was, was around difference, you know, and I think it's really, I, I think it's super valuable to recognize. And we always talk about, oh, difference is really good. You know, diversity is really good because all these different experiences, it's absolutely true, you know, that um, as, as long as you value, value it, um, then you get the different perspectives and that kind of thing. It's not something that you should try and ignore or somehow in the discount or discard it really should be something that we all value because um there is value in it yeah absolutely i think it, it's it's a strange one because it can be so sort of validating to sort of see mm -hmm. those similarities between um people's experiences mm -hmm. but but also sort of a, a sort of weird feeling of kind of well does anything ever really change are those things mm -hmm. always kind of a constant cycle of people will have to go through x if they are from this community or identify this way or whatever yeah. um, was was there anything in particular perhaps from that research that kind of really stood out to you that perhaps has kind of left more of a sort of profound sort of feeling or changed your kind of perspective or understanding of something yeah it's an interesting one because i don't i'm not sure that my perspective is massively changed only because a lot of times the journey that everyone kind of describes i've been through myself you know and it's it's really to a place of you know because we always talk about this idea you know self-discovery get to know yourself or what or whatever and i think it's less about that i feel like it's more about remembering who i am because i think we have this perception sometimes that we have to become I feel like though we enter this world as amazing human beings, <laughs> you know, I think the life uh, I spent, I've been spending my life remembering who I am, not discovering or like becoming who I am. And I think what we get told is that you have to become, you have, and a lot of that is a myth. You have to be, you have to be like that. <laughs> you have to do this kind of job in this way to be successful, you know? And I think as a queer person, I'm like, oh, that does not make sense to me <laughs> you know I'm like none of that experience is something that I want and it really doesn't match who I am and my personality in in general terms you know so I think kind of figuring that out on my own what I'm discovering is a lot of people have that same experience you know if you have brown skin or uh, you're a woman or your uh, gender identity is is different from what people might expect you know whatever it happens to be you know then you then you go on this uh <laughs> this uh this journey defined, you know, your path in a, in a way. So I think, um, so I think the, the surprise comes really in the power of people's stories, you know, because at the end, I always ask people, what kind of leadership do we need more of in the world today? Not one person said more direct, directive leadership. No one said more of what we have now. Everyone said, we need more love. We need more human centric leadership. We need more diverse leadership, you know, things like this, that we know are true, you know, so in that sense, it's not a surprise, but at the same time, it's, it's the way that I reacted to it. There was a surprise because, and this is not an exaggeration, at least five times during an hour, when I speak with somebody, I get chills, you know, and I think that's the, it's not just the power of storytelling. It's the power of these amazing lives that we live and we get to live, you know? So I think, um, that's somehow in this work that I want to get across, you know, that that we don't have to be what somebody else says we need to be. You know, we don't have to conform. We don't have to somehow match this archetype of what leadership is, let's say. What we get to do is is um, remember that we're fucking amazing. I don't know if we're allowed to swear on this podcast, but I just did. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. <laughs> but I'm like, that's so that's I think that's. Um, 
that's that's been the the biggest gift i would say not necessarily a surprise but a gift i think that is mm. such a beautiful way to to end our our episode today thank you so much for your time today jay i really really appreciate it that's yeah. been such a me. a brilliant um insightful episode so thank yeah. you so much for that you're welcome thanks for having me